Well, good morning, church family. Open up your Bibles to Acts 15 if you're not there already. Um, we have a lot of heavy lifting to do this morning, so let's bow our hearts in prayer and then get after it. Father, we thank you for loving us in Jesus. What an awe, what a marvel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were determined and sprinting away from you in rebellion, thumbing our nose at you with every attitude and action, Christ died for us to save us, to reconcile us to you. Father, thank you for loving us in Jesus. Thank you for your word that shows us who we truly are, that exposes and convicts us by your spirit of sin, and then leads us to and to trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, causing us to be born again. Would you, even now, by your Spirit, do that good work? Confirm and strengthen us in everything that's good and convict us in sin. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 15. Let's dive right in. Uh, verses 1 to 6 is the first chunk. And in it we see that Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their two-year mission journey. Do you remember that back in Acts chapter 14? At the end of chapter 14, we're told that they stayed where for no short period of time? Say it out. Oh, try it again. Antioch, that's right. And this is a time of refreshing both for them and also a time of encouragement for the church in Antioch that was their sending church. So you can imagine the scene, right? These missionaries who had been commissioned, had taken the gospel um, down through Cyprus and then up into Asia Minor, and they'd been gone for two years. They had now returned with the report that many Gentiles were now believing. The church was rejoicing. They were being refreshed. And the Christians in Antioch were being encouraged. But then chapter 15, verse 1, trouble arose. And this trouble took the form, as it often does, of sincere, devout, well-meaning, but wrong individuals. Men from Judea were told that they came down to the church in Antioch. Now, if you look at a map, don't be confused. They came down in a way that was not geographic, but topographical, if you know what I mean. Because Antioch is actually north of Jerusalem, and so these men from Judea who are stirring up trouble in the church in Antioch, they come down because Jerusalem is elevated up on a mountain to Antioch, but we would say they came up. Okay, So they come from Jerusalem, from Judea, to Antioch. Their message to the Gentile converts was this. You must follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Specifically, they were telling these new Christians, the men in particular, that they had to be circumcised. And as you can imagine, probably a lot of the guys were like, yep, out. Right? That's where I draw the line. 
You know, anyway, all joking aside, it created a big problem. Verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas rose up and they fought this message. We're told that they debated them. They corrected anyone who brought this message into the church. Verse 3, then an envoy, including Paul and Barnabas, was sent up, topographically, south, to Jerusalem. And the intent was that this envoy from the church in Antioch, led by Paul and Barnabas, would meet with the apostles. You see that in verse 3? Now, friends, this is critically important because you have to read this in the context of God's unfolding plan of salvation history, right? You have to read this as God's purposes for saving are unfolding in time. This church encountered this big problem at a time before there was a New Testament written, if you will. So to what authority did they appeal? Well, they went to the apostles back in Jerusalem. That was the authority. These apostles, who it was their witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ that would form the backbone of what we call the New Testament. That was the authority. So back then, they had a question about things that were happening in the church, and they went to appeal to the apostles in person. Here's the point. When we as a church have questions of issues that arise, where do we go? We go to the apostles in their authority, in their word written. So that's, that's what they appealed to. These guys went down to the apostles. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. That would be down through modern-day Syria and through Lebanon, and then down to Jerusalem, verses 4 to 5. They arrive in Jerusalem. They are warmly greeted as brothers. And they begin telling everyone in the Jerusalem Mother Church all that the Lord has done over the last two years, not only in Antioch, but during this missionary journey as Paul and Barnabas took the gospel. And this was their message. They said, brothers, apostles, elders, you're not going to believe this. God is saving non-Jews. Well, some of them received it as great news, but others were told, this party of the Pharisees in particular, these guys who were traveling up to Antioch and stirring up trouble, they opposed them in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, these new Gentile converts, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, friends, you can see what's taking shape here, right? If this were a Western movie, this would be like a Mexican standoff. The two parties are faced off, and they're about to go to battle. I want to just pause here for a moment as we recap this part to gather our gains. Because as we jump into this passage, into this chapter, we have to be really clear on a couple of foundational questions. Okay, here they are. What was the question at hand? What were the stakes of that question? Well, you know, this is perhaps one of the most important moments captured in the New Testament. 
Because the question at hand is nothing less than the character and the nature of God. The scope of his saving purposes. The question is, are you saved? How are you saved? Can you know that you are saved? What do you need to do to be saved? So look, the question in Acts chapter 15 is specific to these Gentile converts. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the law of Moses? But the questions that echo through the millennia to us today in 2023 are of eternal consequence to you and to me. You know, these days, Christians in particular seem to be far less concerned with the question, do I need to keep the law of Moses? I, I don't know that I've ever had new parents come to me and say, do we need to circumcise our baby boy to ensure that he will spend eternity in heaven? Much less, I've never had young men who are converted to Christ later in life come and ask the question for themselves. It's just, it's just not the way it works. But it's still the same question, it just takes different form. Let, let me show you what I mean. So, if you are a new convert to Christ, you've just been saved, you've just been born again over the last little while, or maybe you're a long-time Christian, you are like these Gentiles in chapter 15 who have just been saved, about whom Paul and Barnabas are now reporting. You are born again. You have been born of the Spirit. God has granted you faith so that you are convicted of the sin that up until that point you never gave thought to. You've been granted faith so that you can trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've become a new creation in Christ. That's who you are. And yet, like these new converts in our chapter, there are well-meaning, sincere, devout people who will either with their words or with their actions communicate to you this message. Unless you, you know, fill in the blank, you're not saved. Or even worse, Sometimes your own accusing soul will ask you questions like that. Are you really saved? Are you doing all the right things? You know, there's probably more that you should be doing, or you should be doing it better, or there's probably some things that you shouldn't be doing, otherwise you're not saved. Right? That comes not only from outside sources, from people, but it also sometimes comes from your own insecure um, accusing soul. Worse yet, sometimes it comes from the accuser of your soul, Satan, who will seek to rob you of the assurance and the joy of your salvation with this very question. Unless you, blank, you are not saved. 
Well, see, the fundamental problem back in chapter 15 with these party of the Pharisees is the same problem today. We have a tendency to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's human nature. When we do it or when we see other people doing it to us, it exposes the fact that they have actually fundamentally lost faith and trust that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, the first thing that we need to do is to recognize when these voices come along that seek to rob you of your assurance of your salvation, when they try to add things that you must do, whether it's circumcision, keeping the law of Moses, whatever it may be, you have to recognize those voices for what they are. They are the men who've come down from Judea who are causing trouble. They are the party of the Pharisees. They are undermining, they are robbing the good work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your soul. Well, let's watch how this unfolds in verse 6. So have a look. The apostles and the elders have now gathered in Jerusalem to consider this matter. Their question is, what should we do with these Gentile converts? Do they need to keep the law of Moses? Do they need to be circumcised? But the deeper question is, what is the purpose of the law? And do these guys need to keep it? Well, friends, bear in mind as we move through these verses that the stakes could not be higher. We're going to look through these verses by looking at the three different speeches that are given. All right, let's jump into the first one. Verses 7 to 11, Peter's speech. So in verse 7, we're told that there's a lot of debate happening. So the, the room, as you can imagine, in this gathering in Jerusalem is quite stirred up, and Peter's the first one to stand up and give voice. His point, verse 7, he said, God chose me to bring the gospel to the nations. You remember that back in Acts chapter 10? He was staying... Um, he was staying at, well, no, actually, in, in chapter 10, it was with Cornelius that he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's his first thing. God chose me to do it. Verses 8 to 9, he said, and what I discovered is that God granted them the same Holy Spirit as he's given to us. What he's saying is, in the same way that the Lord caused us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He's also causing the Gentiles to, at a deep level in their heart. Peter says to those gathered, he said, look, God knows all of our hearts, and he has cleansed all of our hearts by faith. So this is the progression of Peter's speech to the crowd. He then says in verse 10, he says, why on earth, if all of that is true, if God called me to take the gospel to them, if when we took the gospel to them, we saw that the same Holy Spirit that caused us to be born again and believe is still at work in them, causing them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says, why would we place some other burden upon them? Why would we throw another yoke upon their neck? Why would we set up hurdles that they have to jump over? 
And he goes even further. He says, because look, if we're honest, those burdens, that yoke, the law of Moses, never saved our forefathers anyway. They couldn't keep it. Well, this is a critical point that's unfolding. Peter tells the Jerusalem council, he says, look, we can't take these guys, these Gentiles who are newly saved, and place this burden of the law of Moses on them because the law of Moses never saved anyone anyway. No one could ever keep it. So that wasn't its purpose. Well, what was the purpose of the law then? Well, Paul would later in his letters write that the law served a couple of purposes. The first one is to show God's good order, and the second purpose of the law was under the power of the Holy Spirit to show you and me that we need a Savior, that we can't please God on our own with the things that we do. Okay, let's, re- let's come back to the question. This is the, this is the argument unfolding, right? This is Peter talking and addressing. The question is, how is a Gentile, non-Jew, saved? Do they need to keep the law? Verse 11, Peter says, a Gentile, non-Jew, is saved in exactly the same way that a Jew is saved. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, friends, how many are the foes and the forces that stand against the gospel and seek to place undue yokes and burdens upon you as a Christian? They say things like, okay, look, you've repented, you've believed, but now you must fill in the blank. They say things to you like, okay, you've repented and believed, but now you must not, or you won't be saved. Well, Peter speaks to these gathered leaders in the earliest church in Jerusalem, and he says to them, he goes, look, guys, you're not saved by anything that you've done. You're not saved by anything that you're going to do. You're saved by what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ever fulfilled the law of Moses. And by his grace, he gifts you with his perfect record. That's how you're saved. This is unique to Christian faith amongst other world religions. Every other world religion says, Do, don't. But in Christianity, we have the gospel that says done for you in Jesus. Not by your law keeping, but by his perfect faithfulness to God. Verse 11. Peter finishes his speech by saying, but we believe that we will be saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus 
just as they will. So let's make this pointed before we move on. If you're a Christian man or woman here this morning, how are you saved? Well, you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his grace to you. How can you know that you're saved? Well, you certainly don't know that you're saved by looking in the mirror. You certainly don't look, know that you're saved by trying harder to keep the law. You know that you are saved by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. To looking to him as your savior. As the only one who ever fulfilled that law of God. You are only too aware of all the ways that you fall short of the law of Moses. And in fact, Paul would say, well, that was the whole point of the law. To expose your sin, to show your need for a savior, to strip away all of your self-assurance, to drive you into your need for Jesus. Anything else that is placed upon you in this language is a burden. It's a yoke. And it's one that never saved anyone anyway. Here is the gospel arithmetic. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You see, the moment that you insert any of your own virtue into that equation of God's saving grace, it actually doesn't just become slightly because of you, it becomes entirely about you. Because it becomes about whether or not you did however much you should have done. Look, we live our lives sometimes in error as though we, the gospel is, is we do our very, very, very best and then God tops up the rest with his grace. And so we as Christians just kind of live our lives trying to keep the law of God, trying to earn our salvation, doing the best we can, and then going to God, a little top up, please. Just a little, just a little more. I'm doing my part. Well, friends, this is what is centrally at issue in the Jerusalem Council. What do these Gentiles need to do? And Peter's speech finishes with that statement. They, like us, are saved only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's all gift. Don't place a burden on them. The burden never saved us anyway. All right, verse 12. This, this interaction is much shorter, so now Peter's given it. So there's been a bunch of debate. Peter stands up and gives his speech. Then Paul and Barnabas take the floor, and what they do is they just share testimony. They say, this is what's happened over the last two years. And then the third speech, verses 13 to 21, James speaks. And James, his speech is structured very intentionally. The first thing that he does, he talks about Simeon, and, which is Peter, and what he experienced, you know, through the saving of Cornelius and his household. 
He then says, look, folks, this aligns completely with Scripture. That's what we see in verses 16 to 18. He quotes the Old Testament prophets, and he says, this is what Peter experienced, the salvation of Gentiles. This is what we should have expected, because it's true in Scripture. And so what James is doing here becomes a bit of a model or a paradigm for us as well. We as Christian men and women ought to measure and evaluate all of our experiences against God's word. We ought to take everything that we've experienced, no matter how profound, no matter how touching, and place it under the truth of the word of God. Let me just give you a bit of an aside. We live in a time right now where the secular narrative tells you that the highest virtue, the greatest good, is for each and every individual to trust themselves, to follow their heart, to be who they think they ought to be, to find yourself. And there are a few phrases I hate more than that one, right? I'm going to find myself. I don't know, man. I'm right here, right? Well, look, you're told from the time you're a little kid in Disney movies that what you need to do is follow your heart. That's the secular narrative. Your experiences are all true and experiences are all subjective. So who's to say what truth is anyway? So follow your own heart. That's what the world tells you. But the Bible tells you a very different thing. It paints a very different picture, in fact. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, should you trust your heart? Should you trust your experiences? Should you follow after your heart? No. It leads to death and to hell. Christian men and women take their subjective feelings and they bring them under the objective truth of God's word. That's the model in a different way of what James is doing here. He says, look, this is what Peter experienced. This is what Simeon experienced. Oh, and it's legitimate and true because we see it in God's word. You see that? This speaks to the issue at hand for them. But it also speaks to us this morning. Man, I spend so much time talking to Christians who give themselves over to this question in an unhelpful way. They ask themselves regularly, do I feel saved? Do, do I feel saved, right? Do I have the warm, fuzzy feelings? Do I, and, and the problem with that is you are looking to subjective feelings when if you want assurance of your salvation, you need rather to look to the objective truths of Scripture. The question is not, do I feel saved? The question is, does Scripture tell me that I am among those who are saved? Am I one for whom Jesus died? Am I one whom the Father set his affection on from before the foundation of the world? The Holy Spirit then caused me to repent of my sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if that's objectively true in Scripture, then it doesn't really matter a whole lot 
what my objective feelings are, what my subjective feelings are. Okay, so that's, that's what James sets out in his speech, okay? He says that's what Simeon experienced, but it's more true because it's substantiated in Scripture. Verse 19, having heard the issue, having listened to the ensuing debate, having heard from Peter and having received the report from Paul and Barnabas, and then James measures that truth against Scripture, he now emerges in the Jerusalem council as the leader, despite what your Roman Catholic friends tell you. A sermon for another day. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, it's my judgment. Gosh, sure sounds like a leader to me, doesn't it? He's taken all of this information. He's taken all that he's heard. He's taken all the debate. He then brings it to bear under Scripture. He then says, therefore, it is my judgment. And what, and what did he say? What did he conclude? He said, look, we are not going to trouble these Gentiles. He says, the same spirit that we received by which we were born again and convicted of our sin, the same spirit that caused us to trust in the Savior, has caused them to turn to God. And that's enough. So he says, look, we're going to write this out in a letter and we're going to send it to those Gentile Christians. What's behind this is James' keen awareness that there are 613 mitzvot. You know what a mitzvot is? The law of God. And what he's saying is, he goes, look, there, there may be 613 of them, but here are three or four, depending how you count them, that these Gentile Christians ought to keep. Look at verse 20. Write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, strangled and blood might be two separate things. They might be one and the same. If you think about the butchering process when an animal is killed properly, it is exsanguated, right? It has a major artery slit and the blood leaves that animal. An animal that is killed through strangulation, it dies with its blood still in it. So that may be one thing or that may be two, but that's beside the point. James says, write to them and, and tell them these things. We're going to unpack those in a moment. Look at verse 21. He then assures the council that these guys are going to receive these three things as good news. He says to them, you know, the law of Moses has been read in every city on the Sabbath in the synagogues. What's he saying? He's saying, look, even some of these Gentile Christians, they will either know or know of the 613 mitzvot. They're going to receive it as good news that they don't have to keep all 613, but that we're just recommending this small handful. Verses 22 to 29, here's the letter. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. 
So they write the letter, verse 22, they give the letter to Paul and Barnabas to take to Antioch. They send a couple of other trusted brothers, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leading men in the church. And here's what the letter means to us today. Look at verses 23 to 27. In the letter, they tell these Gentile Christians, we've heard your report. We've sent this letter to you in the trustworthy hands of these men who are witnesses to Jesus Christ. Verse 28, it is good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Verse 28, we do not lay any greater burden on you than this. Verse 29. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then they finish the letter with this qualifying, modifying, critically important statement. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So farewell. Well, you know, friends, if you're going to rightly understand these things, it is most important to remember that the council has already acknowledged that these Gentiles in Antioch are Christians. Let me say this a different way. These requirements are not things that they need to do to be saved. These are in a different category. These are best practices, if you will. Look, that's what the letter says, right? It says, you will do well to keep these things. The council acknowledges that their people these people, these Gentiles in Antioch and beyond, they are not saved by what they do in law-keeping. They're saved by Jesus Christ. The question that they're now addressing is, now that they are saved, how should they live? Let me, let me drive this even further. Friends, keeping these laws does not make you a Christian. We could all list countless moral, ethical, virtuous people who when they die, they are going to hell. The flip side of that is that not keeping these does not make you unsaved. Okay, let me, let me take another approach at this because this is really important. So you're saved. And now, the way that you live either enhances or inhibits the gospel. That's what, that's what this is about. You've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by observing the laws of God, 613 or 4. That's not the point. That's what the Jerusalem Council is saying. But now the way that you live your life will either enhance or inhibit the gospel in you and through you. That's what these are. 
the way that you live your life as a Christian is either going to enhance the gospel in you or inhibit it in you. It's either going to grant you assurance and peace and joy or the way that you live will rob you of those things. So be wise about how you live. The way that you live your life as a Christian will either enhance or inhibit the gospel not only in you but through you because other people are watching. That's why the Jerusalem Council said to these Christians, if you keep these, you will do well. So you're reading through some of these lists. We've identified the fact that keeping these is not what saves the Gentile Christians. They're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are best practices about how they should live. Well, there's one that might stick out to you if you're sort of a clever Bible reader. That is where the Jerusalem Council says, do not eat food that has been offered to idols. And yet, you, knowing your Bible, said, well, in 1 Corinthians, there's a couple of places where Paul says, if somebody offers you food that's been offered to idols, he said, Christ is the head of all things. Idols are just dumb and dead. So give thanks to God for it and eat it. And do those two things not conflict? Well, the first thing to say about it is, no, they don't. And here's how. Well, first we have acknowledged that these are not salvation issues about law-keeping. These are about best practices, and as such, they are matters of conscience and therefore contextual. In this case, the Jerusalem Council is saying to these Gentile Christians, in your interactions, especially amongst other Jewish believers, um, you're going to do well if you don't eat food that's been offered to idols, food that's been strangled, food that has, has blood in it. But the other way that you have to approach this as a, as a Christian and as a student of Scripture is to say, within Scripture, there are trajectories. Now, you've got to be really careful with this one. Because within Scripture, there are trajectories, and you follow those trajectories, but you can never faithfully take those trajectories beyond Scripture. So within Scripture, the trajectory of eating food that has been offered to idols is these first Gentile Christians are told it's best practice if you don't do that. But later, Paul widens that, and he says, look, it's a matter of conscience, If it doesn't offend your conscience, give thanks to God and eat it. If there's another person around and it's going to offend their conscience, then don't do it. Defer to the weaker brother. So that's the trajectory of that one. And so now you're looking at this list through a different light, aren't you? You may be looking at it, sinner that you are, and saying, man, that's awesome. Not only do I get to eat food that's been offered to idols, but that must mean the same thing for sexual immorality. Fire up the Tinder account. Let's go. No. Because in the same way that the trajectory of food being offered to idols widens as you read through Scripture, the trajectory of sexual purity remains the exact same, if not tightens. 
So friends, as you are dealing with these issues that are about how you live as a Christian, you must faithfully read and study the scriptures. Well, this is still the case today. Some Christians and some group of Christians put the emphasis on the wrong syllable in salvation. They take secondary issues of good practice, of conscience, and they turn them into salvation issues. Let let me give you an example. There are some Christians who do not drink alcohol, they do not dance, they do not go to movies. And if those are matters of personal piety and practice, you do those in devotion to Christ, you say, yeah, that's, that's just what I do, then God bless you. There's probably some merit in that. But if you take those secondary measures and you make them requirements for salvation for yourself and for others, see, that's where the problem lies. Those things of law-keeping never saved anyone, and they never will. That's the point. That's the point of the letter, okay? You're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the Jews have always been saved by trusting in God, made explicit in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here are some matters of best practice. Here are some things that you ought to do. Verses 30 to 35. So they took the letter back to Antioch. They gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they read it, the Christians in Antioch rejoiced because of its encouragement. Look, this is the way that the gospel works. The gospel lays no undue burden on you. Instead, it leads to rejoicing and encouragement. Precisely because what it does is it moves your eyes off of you and places your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes your eyes off of your own law-keeping and your own shortcomings, and it fixes your gaze on Jesus. So this morning, friend, if you are struggling with assurance, the problem is that you're looking to yourself and not to Christ. If you are not yet a Christian, then your salvation will not be found in trying harder. Your salvation will be found in repenting and believing that God in Jesus has saved you. Have you received that news with rejoicing? Because that's what the gospel is supposed to be. It's supposed to be good news. Have you received that news as a source of encouragement, not as a heavy yoke and a burden? Is that the truth that shapes your life and your actions? How am I saved? I'm saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I know that I'm saved? 
I look to him. He's faithful. How should I live? Will you pursue holiness? Not in order to be saved, but you get to pursue holiness because you are saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel and for your saving work in Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have and are causing your people to repent and believe on Jesus. Father, you know that in so many ways this narrative of earning, law-keeping, creeps in. That those troubling men from Judea are still around all the time, both literally around us and even inside us, ourselves. It robs us of the joy and assurance of our salvation. God, I pray that you would allow this truth of the gospel to sink ever deeper into our hearts and lives. That as it has always been the case, we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so with rejoicing and encouragement, we get to live lives that are pursuing holiness. We pray this in your name. Amen.